Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Hey. Hey. How, How are you your... feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Deeply ensconced in Division 2 Endgame. Ooh. Um, I've, re- I've, I've actually not listened to LBC that much. That's good. Um, so you decided to enact like a right-wing power fantasy in in place of LBC? <laughs> yeah. Um, it took me a while, but I made my little man look like um, Snake Plissken, so I'm pretty pleased of, with that. Of course. Yeah. Um, how but, is the story in Division I meant to ask you, actually. Story. How is the, like, the story in Division 2? Because like, I keep it's hearing true. a lot of stuff about, like, like, so it's about the collapse of like America after a huge yeah. plague, and like you do things like rescue the Constitution and stuff like um, that. Well, that's a side mission where you go get the Constitution. There's yeah. like there's a bit like we should get the Constitution. The people will rally behind a symbol. So I was like, but we need food. It's like no, <laughs> we need this. Also, you can get a skin, which is the Constitution, like like stuck to your gun. <laughs> okay, that's pretty awesome because I can imagine someone would do that. Yeah. If, if, I, think they pretty much have. I always love that in games how Pete like uh, all those side missions and stuff when you're portraying like the uh, the fall of like American civilization mm. or whatever, like Fallout and stuff like that, where they place such emphasis on something like the good side reclaiming the symbols of yeah. Americanism. Yeah. And it's like it's it's so it's just mirrors that it mirrors that whole thing of we're this is the true constitution. We're yeah. getting back to the way the founding fathers <laughs> really wanted it, which is something common to like conservatives and some liberals. Yeah, that's it's um they think they can have it both ways. Plot-wise, it's lighter on the plot than the first game because mm-hmm. the first game had a lot of trying to find out where the plague comes from. This one, there's like, there's you, you go around a lot of the different factions. Um, it tries to paint one group as being quite bad, and I just can't see anything wrong with them. They use um, well, they're the ones that use suicide bombers, and um, <laughs> <they're> <laughs> oh, all, oh yeah, they, you know, <laughs> well they're like they're asymptomatic carriers of the plague, and yeah, um, the government decided to put them in a concentration camp and leave them to die. Lovely. Um, and they survived, and so they really hate the government, <laughs> and they want to infect everybody. And ah. I'm like, I kind of see where you're going with this. Seeing as the other ones are like PMCs, <laughs> yeah. it's like, they've at least got a reason. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's alright, it's pretty good, because yeah. I've been doing that, and not listen to LBC, listen to um, Blazing Northern Sky, listen to some Sunno. Uh, so you're working your way up from LBC. Yeah. From right wing talk radio through to Burton, through black metal and drone, (laughs) and then it's slowly going to soften until you know by next week you're listening to I don't know Bella Sebastian. Yeah, maybe. Um, Oh yeah, and I listen to listen to every tool I'm going to (laughs) roll. I I do that every couple of years. It's the it's the crawling back to the womb of (laughs) your ego. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's it's good. It's like rebuilding myself from from the bottom up. Except it was really it was. This is actually the worst time worst time I've had doing that because Maynard is a monster. Yeah, I fucking. There's always been the sense harder to listen to. There's always been the sense of being a tall fan of you being a schmuck because every tall fan is a fucking idiot, and you're like, I'm a tall fan. I'm the only not idiot tall fan. Yep, (laughs) just me. Just me. I'm the only good one. And then Maynard's still doing his like weird '90s edge lord stuff. Oh yeah, very weird. Bacon in his wine. Oh yeah, yeah, that was it. And like telling people to respect our troops. Yeah, uh, respect troops and cops on on stage. It's like. You're talking about like the fourth dimension. No one asked you about cops. Yeah, we're talking about aliens. <laughs> so you know, fine. It's like it's all right. So, um, I'm made it's all good. <laughs> they're you know they're ideologically fine. I think. Yeah, sure. Ish. I don't think they're that bad. They're not as bad as him. Well, no, they're just rich. Yeah, they're just rich old men. Yeah, but yeah, it's been better than listening to LBC. Yeah. Um. um so far this week, um, the thing that drive 
drove me insane was the whole thing around uh, indicative votes for Brexit. So I'm not even mm. really sure of what exactly this means. I've got a lot of like thoughts, but not a lot of knowledge, which luckily <laughs> a podcast is the ideal venue for that. The um, votes seem... It's what's quite good about it. It's like, so tomorrow is all votes, all day. Uh-huh. And they have no binding powers, but they'll tell everyone the general feeling. It will tell what Parliament actually wants. Yeah. In very much the similar way to how the Brexit vote was advisory as well. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing that drove me insane was the uh, the headline of like, Theresa May may ignore indicative votes. And it's like, no, she would. why? Like, of course. I mean, yeah. of course, yeah. But like, then what... Where exactly does power lie in this whole structure anymore? Yeah, uh, l- forget legitimacy. That's yeah. authority. That's that's long gone. Mm-hmm. Nobody has any clue. We've talked about this in like mm-hmm. the constitutional crisis episode and, and all that. But we should have really noticed, like, um, excuse me, we should have really noticed uh, the, the the that this was going to happen when the CBI mm-hmm. like turned against the Tory party because like. Yeah. You can you can predictably rely on certain institutions in the hegemonic <laughs> superstructure of British yeah. society to be can rough roughly conservative mm-hmm. as representing certain fractions of capital. And then you've got to this stage where the CBI hate her, the TUC obviously hate her, um, and are asking her to step aside. Literally, the only thing that is continually giving her the benefit of the doubt is the media, yeah. which just happens to be one of the more powerful well, aspects of that. And, um, so Jacob Rees-Mogg has come out today. It was a few years today. He said that he was going to vote for a deal, um, which is brilliant <laughs> because course. you know, like he. Yeah, he, why not? You know, um, and one of the things that's quite good is I just saw on Twitter, um, Leave.eu have turned on Jacob Rees-Mogg now. Of course they have. Okay. Uh, um, because you know he's he's betraying the will of the people uh-huh. because her deal is shit, and we should just have a hard no deal Brexit. And you know, um, which you know that's quite funny to watch. Like as they will start eating each other. Um, so yeah, good luck on that. There was uh, something today with the uh, Bruges group. Yeah, they seem. Um, like, they seem there so was good. a load of so shit like, on that the, since Sunday. Like the meeting at what's it called? Um, Checkers. Mm-hmm. Um, they called like because before there was the Star Chamber. This one with the Grand Wizards, um, <laughs> you know, in red robes and everything. Yeah. Um, and so they're like, oh no, it's, it was we weren't really just doing a KKK thing. And then today there's like cultural Marxism, this yes. war on socialism, that two pictures of Thatcher. Suella Brave, it was Suella Braverman, wasn't yeah. it, who said that uh, to the Bruges group, uh, we are going after like a hard Brexit because we're in a war against cultural Marxism. Mm. Immediately kind of said, uh, d- are you sure you mean that? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, con- the, the, the connotation yeah. of cultural Marxism said, like, is... Anders Brevik said that. Yeah, <laughs> is not only Judaism, but like generally liberal forces mm. as a whole. Um, it's a right-wing, right-wing talking point. And she's like... Uh, yeah, I did mean that. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, and it's like uh, I mean, you think about it. Actually, it kind of it kind of makes sense because I mean, where else are conservative MPs and politicians who are bound to the Conservative Party as a career path mm-hmm. and see absolutely no future in it? Mm-hmm. They've got to kind of tack their ways to somewhere. Yeah, and the alt right is probably the only conservative tradition right now with as disgusting as it sounds, like a, a groundswell of, of support of a a programme. It's horrifying. That's energy. It, I'd say energy. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe that's the right word. Yeah. I, it's um, a, an insubstantial word that means, like, 
they can perceive a way their particular way through whatever this moment is mm. which is going to be fucking horrible yeah. it's going to be camps and um it was, she was calling she I think it was her, no it was um Christopher Chope the the bloke who likes to um just ruin things in parliament whenever like a law's going to be passed on something that everyone has sort of agrees on oh yeah like it was the upskirting upskirting and, and female like general mutilation jesus christ and um, they just like no um he was like we'll go to the streets we'll be the blue shirts uh, oh and, god like he was giving a speech to a room full of cold warriors and by that i mean that they were alive during the cold war <laughs> and at their peak <laughs> and also they were in their 90s so were naturally very cold <laughs> yeah um, yeah i'm surprised we haven't seen this kind of this kind of tack taken earlier because I mean it's been clear to everybody that the Conservative Party is in just this moment of terminal crisis it, yeah. it, it can't like ironically I think as we said last week in order to survive a no deal Brexit with any kind of shred of living standards intact mm. they would have probably had to reinvent themselves as a social democratic party mm. and start genuinely like investing and nationalising things mm. Um, and it's not like they don't have the kind of intellectual cover to do that. The Conservative Party before kind of uh, put forward this like paternalistic mm. view of the welfare state of like noblesse oblige and, and all that kind of thing. And so, I know. So we're the seventy fifth anniversary of the um, Conservative Party founding the NHS. Remember? <laughs> of course. How could I forget? Yeah. Who was it who said that? Um, the Conservative Party. What? They've been they've been announced they've been playing around with that today um, on their like official Twitter accounts and stuff because it's seventy five years since the white paper. Um, oh, which was, the, the white paper itself. Yeah. Uh, okay. I thought they were going to go oh, the beverage report or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's like it, you know they're just doing the Tory thing. Yeah, yeah. Of like rewriting history and then saying, but it's true <laughs> until you lose your mind. It's you know it's what they do at the moment. It's, it's a fun game they play. Yeah. Um. Like oh that's the thing. Yeah, because it's just it's been a good week for racisms because there was a copper who's just been reinstated and given. I think she was given like twenty grand or something. She was given a big lump of money for like mm. we're sorry for ever kicking you out of the job because she said the n word and the p word to someone on the job. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. I mean, I suppose they wouldn't classify it as a as a, a one off payout. It would more be like you know a wage. <laughs> she did what was in the job description, the- <laughs> so she got a wage for doing it. That's how that's how a job works, even in the police. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah. This week's been fucking horrible. Really. Yeah. So far, um, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just not paying attention to it. I've 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 focused on 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 other things and just am vaguely kind of floating through like. The headlines. Mm, I watched bit. I saw like bits of the stuff with that march, um, and you know. Oh yeah, we like, did talk were lots about that. Of, yeah, there were lots of good reasons to go on the march. Um, I I wouldn't march with the SWP, so I wouldn't march with a bunch of war criminals. Um, <laughs> so like, like the, the people who like there were some plenty of people who were marching, who like there was a left block. And that yeah, yeah. Fine. But there was like photos of like the front, and you've got all these like young conservative fanners, and it's like anyone who's with them. You're an idiot. You're part of the party that's doing it. Yeah, and um, they were like, they were singing like, "Where's Jeremy Corbyn?" And it's like, "Well, yeah, no shit. Tories fucking hate him." It's just, it's just the whole like, and there was a huge kind of uh, division on 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 Twitter over the weekend about the march. There were a lot of people, which I kind of can generally agree with. Of you can't condemn like, I I wouldn't want to be on a march that was judged by its silliest member. 
No, that's definitely um, not because otherwise we'll be judged by um, Spartacus every time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be judged by you know the, the SWP mm. every every fucking time, and obviously that's not a not a good thing. But at the same time, there's there seems to be a real lack of tactics for exactly what was going to do. And I suppose you can, again, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because you can say that about anything. You say that about the, anti, the anti-war the anti march. I know like protesting is a, a moral duty at certain points where you see something that you don't want. It, 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 it is a good in itself, I think. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the fact that it has been seized upon by just... When Alistair Campbell... Mm-hmm. can really, really go on about how much a march of a million people can change politics. When it was under 400,000 for a start. Well, the the number is disputed, certainly. Um, the, it was the group that... It was the person who did the numbers for the Trump march. Mm. And from looking at the pictures and looking at other ones, I would say that it was definitely not 2 million. It was definitely not 1 million. It was probably... Closer to half a million, okay. if anything. And I know an awful lot of them left before Tom Watson could speak. And when he did speak, he got rev- he got booed. Really? Well, because he said he was going to vote for a deal. Oh, I, do- I don't understand. This is like this is what I mean when I say the tactics are wrong. Well, yeah, there's, right? no, there's, there's no link. Like, okay, the anti-war march had very, very few advocates in Parliament at the mm-hmm. moment. We are led to believe there is enough advocates against the deal generally, and mm. against Brexit, to form a majority mm-hmm. in in Parliament, right? So what you've got is you've got a groundswell, in inverted mm. commas, on the streets protesting, doing a protest. You've got large amounts of cultural forces rallied in the media. Mm-hmm. You've got probably like a lot of institutions and the commanding heights of the economy mm-hmm. who are against uh, against Brexit as a whole. How can they not link up with so many political representatives in Parliament and actually do something about it. It could be a legal challenge. It could be like an actual political challenge, something like that. Like I know that why are like why are they waiting around for Corbyn to do what they want? Because they know it can't work. But it's, I mean, I know obviously it's. Is. I know obviously it's like they don't want Corbyn as the figurehead of Liberal Britain. Yeah. That is ultimately, liberalism is in a crisis, mm. it's going through a reformulation, and Brexit, the way that they're approaching Brexit is probably just a reformulation of that, right? Mm. But And the Labour Party was always the, traditionally, although it's got obviously its socialist wing, it, it took the place of the Liberal Party mm. as like, in, in like it's the centre-left party, it's yeah. the centre-centre-left party. Um, it also obviously has its other like, centre-right authoritarians and Frank Fields and all that. But like, you know, that. It was the it's the Liberal Party of yeah. Britain, right? It's undergone a formulation. It hasn't gone. I wouldn't say very far from its no. stuff on like civil liberties and things like that. As far as like those are the traditional concerns of like nineties liberalism. Mm-hmm. So, what's the fucking problem? Mm-hmm. I I'm, I know I'm probably <laughs> this is probably rhetorical more than anything, but what's the fucking problem? If you if you want Brexit not to do any damage, go for a soft Brexit, then that's what Labour wants. That's what mm. Corbyn has been wanting. If you want it revoked, go with fucking Vince Cable and Lib Dems and see how far it gets you. They probably do better with that kind of like uh, like critical support behind them. I don't understand why people don't do what they want to do, I suppose <laughs> is what I'm saying. I don't understand why this formulation of don't vote for what you want because that'll never happen, vote for what you don't want. I, I 
cannot get my head around it. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's um, well, yeah. <laughs> my thing with the Mar- I thought the march was like there's those. I'd say that there's a chunk of people who were there for generally positive reasons of like solidarity with our European comrades. Yes, who sure. are having a shitty time. Yeah, here at the moment. Um, I would say like going off coaches of um of baby boomers coming down yeah. from the hamlets um singing their terrible songs with their terrible placards i think an awful lot of it is um like mummy and daddy's first protest yeah. and just having a just a just a great old time the fact that there was absolutely no arrest and they were like talking about that as if it was a positive some I saw a tweet going around. It's like yeah, that's like not a single arrest. Everything was kind of tidy. It wasn't tidy. I saw piles of fucking shit all over the place. But they were very nice to the police because they love the police. Because of course they love the police. And what's happened? Brexit's still happening. Do you know what happened with the poll tax riots? Yeah, no poll tax. That's um, but that's them reinforcing the boundaries of their of their movement. Therefore, yeah. because they're not a dispersed kind of uh, hegemonic cultural grouping anymore, mm. because it has been questioned. And they don't have that kind of like political cachet that they had. They're having to come out in a movement, and they're having to, for the first time, police the boundaries of that mm. movement because they haven't got. Most of them have refused that link with Labour. Mm. The Lib Dems are, like I say, nowhere. Um, they're having to police the boundaries, and the the boundaries are uh, polite discourse, mm-hmm. and we're the we're the friendly ones, we're the comedy ones. It's um. There's a certain amount of viciousness hiding behind that niceness. Oh God, the um, you know, a, like that I, whole I was thing born of British like, don't make me die Irish. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I mean. A twee sentiment. The number yeah. of fucking um, down with this sort of thing. Oh. Um, stuff. Given what Linehan has become. Yeah. Um, or maybe always was. Probably yeah. always was. Yeah. Um, the amount of like lack of linkage, lack of of seriousness. Mm-hmm hidden behind niceness and then when you actually get down to what they want to see quite a vicious streak like distinguishing themselves class wise from oh, other pro- other protests boasting about their you know? politically their grammatically correct signs yeah that kind of shit that's I think what I mean the last thing I'll say on it so it's a thing because Jeremy Corbyn was in Morecambe because it was coming up to like the anniversary of um, those um, cockle pickers who died yeah um, you know being forced to work in dangerous conditions by gangmasters modern slavery is horrible and should be opposed. And the done. fact that modern slavery exists is a blight. Is yeah. fucking dis- like unbelievable. Yeah, and it's you nice know? to have a leader of a party talk about that. Yeah, um, rather than just talk about it for the first twenty minutes after it's happened. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. But definitely. The, one of the comments was like, "Oh, we should you know stay in the EU to protect their rights." Someone points out that you know we were in the EU when they all died, and she, and this woman's response was, "They were here illegally," and that's the thing with them. It's like I can't remember for how long ago. For, if it might have been since two thousand and ten, mm. or it might have been a bit earlier than that. But it's like it was a figure going around of like thirty thousand people have died on Europe on the EU's borders. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Fuck this. Oh, I fucking hate it. It's like scratch a liberal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's that the 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 amount of people who are f- like super pro EU. I'd like like Madalena Kay. I'd like to hear her just say just one thing about the EU that she doesn't like. Yeah. Um, because you know she did that song about how much she's really happy about the um, the copyright thing, the copyright directive. Yeah, yeah, she did a little song about that. That's, yeah, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah so it's a weird time. Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> so I said about how the Tories, you know, invented the NHS, and you know, it's just a traditional thing that the British state likes to do. They, you know, they they say something happened, 
and they insist that thing happened enough that eventually everyone just generally believes it. Like, you know, we stopped, for, we stopped slavery. Do you know why? Because we just love black people that much. Yeah. Definitely not to screw over the French. <laughs> it's like part 17C of getting back at the French. Uh, one of my main interests mm-hmm. uh, in life is the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, like... I, I like a lot of things and I can't really focus that much mm-hmm. on one thing for very long. I've got a very bad attention span, but like yep. I've always been fascinated by like the histori- historiography of the, the British Empire. Um, I did my master's thesis on like um, uh, like companies in Hong Kong and, yeah. and China, um, like a kind of business imperialism, that kind of thing. And obviously... Yeah, but you did like a load of stuff on Jardine Matheson, didn't you? It's a, uh, it was um, Swire. Oh, Swire yeah. and Sons, which is like the secondary uh, Jardine Matheson. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's... I've wanted to do something on kind of proper, like British... The British Empire for a long time, because it's a huge, mm-hmm. huge topic that still has a huge amount of relevance today about how the British conceptualise themselves, mm-hmm. conceptualise their history, and yet there's this huge gaping moor in the middle of it where a lot of people have a very mistaken idea about what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, going into the reasons for this, we're going to talk about Operation Legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will... The 2012 yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, the, it was the... Yeah. <laughs> Putting up houses in East Ham... Um, <laughs> Um, Operation Legacy was the codename for the effort of the British during decolonisation in uh, in association with the colonial authorities to purge records that would be seen as embarrassing mm. after independence was granted. This happened across the British Empire, um, but it particularly came to light in, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. So to take us... Where the British Empire threw the bong out of the window when the mum was knocking on the door. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> it wasn't ours, it was Belgium's. <laughs> um, we were just holding it for Belgium. <laughs> um, so, on May 3rd, 1961... Oh, hang on. Yeah, there's going to be a whole sorry. bunch of content warnings for all this. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, I did mean... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did mean to say that. Um, yeah, there will be some content warnings. Uh, I think it's only about three of them, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll give you a. I'll give you a, a shout before before yeah. they happen. Because you know uh, the empire, real you grody. You cannot talk about decolonization in Africa without getting into some uh, really upsetting uh, descriptions of, of things that happened. So uh, yeah, just to let you know. Yeah. Uh, so on May third, nineteen sixty one. Ian MacLeod, Secretary of State for the Colonies from the UK Colonial Office, which would later be renamed the Foreign Office, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a telegram to all British embassies presenting instructions on how to retrieve official documents from newly independent countries and offer assistance on what should be done with them. Uh, Ian MacLeod. He was born in Yorkshire. He was the son of Scottish parents. Uh, he was a professional bridge player. He coined the phrase stagflation. Okay. Uh, just professional bridge player. <laughs> he was a professional bridge player. Yeah, um, he he was like a weird gadabout at university. I mean, he fought in the Second World no War. No shit, he's a professional bridge player. Um, but he was like a proper professional gadabout, like for yeah. a long, long time. He was a he was a strange, strange one, um, strange conservative certainly. Uh, he was also responsible for abolishing national service hmm. uh, during the sixties. He eventually became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1970, but died within a, bu- a month of being appointed to the position and left behind a hardline austerity budget, which included the abolition of free school milk, which would then fall <laughs> under the purview of, da-da-da, new education secretary Margaret Thatcher. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so that whole thing was uh, not necessarily her policy, but was, uh, yeah, Ian McLeod's. Um, he was made colonial secretary in 1959. Uh, colonial independence, again, although it's not really covered in our kind of the annals of 20th century British history, mm-hmm. uh, colonial independence was a huge issue. Uh, Harold Macmillan, Prime Minister, uh, made his Winds of Change speech in 1960, stating that African independence was the biggest issue his government faced. Two African colonies had become independent by 1960, Sudan and the Gold Coast, which is uh, Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nigeria had had a timetable to become independent. Um, now, all these were on the west coast of Africa, um, which attracted few white settlers because of the climate, so there was no white minority population. Mm-hmm. East and Central Africa, however, had a white ruling minority that was determined to maintain their control over black African populations. Shortly before uh, MacLeod had become colonial secretary in October 1959, the Hola massacre had occurred in Kenya. Kenya had been in what was euphemistically called a state of emergency since 1952 in response to an armed, armed rebellion by the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, or Mau Mau. The Mau Mau were mostly made up of the Kikuyu people from the highlands of Kenya. They had first come into contact with white colonists in 1888 and by the 1930s had been deprived of most of the fertile agricultural land by settlers and reduced to the status of itinerant farmers or labourers. These experiences gave rise to resistant groups, which launched full-scale armed conflict on the British authorities in 1952. Uh, there'll be a bit more on this later. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the African regiments deployed against the Mau Mau featured a little-known soldier called Idi Amin Dada. Really? Yes, he was. that was one of his first postings mm-hmm. when he joined a British regiment from uh, Uganda. Uh, so yeah, the Hola Massacre. Uh, Hola Camp was a remote prison camp for hardcore Mau Maus who had refused to recant their oaths to the movement. The prisoners made a stand and refused to do uh, do hard labour, and the authorities responded. Eleven prisoners died from beatings from white overseers, and 77 were left with permanent life-changing injuries. And, more, as importantly, this had been covered up by the authorities, the deaths being attributed to drinking foul water. However, US Time magazine investigated and uh, ran a story about the massacre, and the slow reveal of the true reasons for the deaths caused tremendous damage to British prestige. It almost brought down the government. Um, The small chink in the veil of the counterinsurgency campaign, of the brutality of the British reaction to the Mau Mau rebellion, could be and was played as a one-off, but it forced the British government to rethink their attitude to decolonisation and to start closing detention camps in Kenya. The state of emergency was lifted on the 12th of January 1960, followed by that that same month by the Lancaster House Conference, containing Africans and some European delegates, including Ian MacLeod's brother Roderick, which agreed to a constitution and eventual black majority rule. Jomo Kenyatta, prominent independence leader and eventual first prime minister of Kenya, was freed in August 1961. So the public reveal of the Hola massacre also put pressure on them to find non-interventionist ways of maintaining relations with its African colonies, which accelerated the demands for independence. So Ian MacLeod was not a stupid man. Uh, He was not particularly wedded to the idea of maintaining the colonies. There were some forces within the Tory party that definitely thought that, you know, white majority status for the colonies had to be maintained. Um, Like institutions like the Monday Club Mm -hmm. in the Conservatives, they of the Hang Mandela fame. Mm They Burkow. Yes, Burkow was a member of the Monday Club, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, while they may not have been committed to, like, a permanent British presence, they were committed to, like, white majority rule. Definitely. Um, However... 
the majority of the Conservative Party, has to be said, were committed to decolonisation, although they weren't quite sure on the speed. Um, questions were being asked um, about how this kind of response to the Mau Mau Rebellion looked when direct memories of the racial genocide of the Second World War were still strong and um, the barbarity of colonialism being associated with a country that was reforming its national myth as a plucky underdog who faced down Nazism mm. um, and then presiding over a prison camp system to entrench a race-based system of power and appropriation. It's, it's not, really hard. It's not a really good fit. It's really hard to carry on pushing the notion of being the plucky underdog when, you know, the sun never sets on your plucky underdogness. <laughs> Um, and this isn't like this isn't to deny the agency of African liberation movements, who obviously <laughs> were African nationalist movements were oh, yeah. growing in power and were responding to British rule in, in various different ways. Um, it wasn't just the British setting a timetable no. and then deciding. Um, although paradoxically, the new generation of leaders with fleshed out plans for independence allowed the British some kind of conceptual wiggle room as regards the myth of their civilising mission that the colonies had come to embrace and appreciate the gifts of British culture and were ready to go it alone. Mm -hmm. um, so this telegram from Ian MacLeod, yeah. uh, it went out to all the British embassies offering guidance on how to manage the destruction and repatriation of records that might, might embarrass the British, damage their future relations with their former colonies or open up the government to recrimination or lawsuits from its victims. The British had formed for large-scale destruction of records. Um, theoretically, every document upon decolonisation, upon independence, should have been handed over to, mm -hmm. to the new government. Um, and early on, the actual, the actual name Operation Legacy wasn't used until kind of later incarnations of this practice that was already going on. Um, Shohai Sato, um, a professor at Waseda University, who's done work on decolonisation, records that the first use of Operation Legacy was in Uganda in 1961, although there's no def definitive origin for the term. Um, in 1947, ahead of Indian independence, British officials burnt papers at such a volume that the pall of smoke descended over Delhi, prompting local newspaper reports and angry protests. Sato identifies uh, a test run of sorts occurring in 1948 in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, um, where discussion of the transfer was raised upon the territory's independence. Um, the transfer of documents was uh, praised at the end of this process as the new government uh, made various independent investigations into what had been handed over and said, oh, we've got everything. We have been handed over everything. So, yeah. Um, the British also did the same in Ghana. Uh, this was the first time that they drew up an actual checklist of documents that should be destroyed or migrated. Um, they established uh, that the documents that should be destroyed were those which would be of no use to a future Gold Coast government, might embarrass a member of Her Majesty's government if seen by a Gold Coast minister, or might embarrass members of the Gold Coast police, military forces, or public servants, or those who had cooperated with the British, with the British, or might compromise sources, or might you be used unethically by Gold Coast ministers. Unethically, unethically. Yeah. which means they would use it to attack the British or yeah. whatever bin business interests yeah. remained. I like the idea of like. It's like, okay, we're going to hand over all the documents now. And there's like a sheet of A4 paper that just has like a thumbs up. And it's like, <laughs> no, we, 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 the British Empire, don't like to keep notes. We just sort of wing it. <laughs> there seems to be a drawing of a, a really, really cool spiky S in the corner of here. <laughs> and a spider's web in the other. 
you appear to have practiced signing your name at the bottom of this piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. It's like to think like if yeah, I bet you that the stuff that's if Scotland was independent mm-hmm. had gone independent, or if it yeah. does go independent yeah. in the in the foreseeable future, the stuff that's covered by the Official Secrets Act now will never see the light of day. Never ever about Scotland if never, it's an independent ever. country. Yeah. I genuinely, I, there's no way that the British would ever, will ever, ever allow no. anything to get out unless they're literally forced to <laughs> at knife point. Well, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. All right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you've seen from uh, Sri Lanka and Ghana, the practices that would later be used for Oper- Operation Legacy were um, kind of, that's where they originated and were, were codified. Mm. This is the first time you have a protocol mm. for the handing over and uh, stroke destruction of documents. Um, so you've also got the decolonisation of Malaya Um, it's unclear when records started to be purged but one month prior to independence the British authorities informed the incoming Prime Minister Tunku Abdul Rahman Putura of its intentions quote the removal of these documents is in accord with the usual policy by which the secret records of one government are not left for the use of its successors I think that you are aware that this is the practice with cabinet papers in the United Kingdom and the opportunity is being taken to destroy a number of files which are no longer of any importance or value. (laughs) This is just how it's done. It's just how how it's it's done. just how it's done. Just don't tell them. Both boxes are covered in blood. It's just how it's done. (laughs) Just ignore it. Ignore it. That's fine. That's fine. So up till now... uh, the policy had been largely decided by colonial authorities on the ground. Um, mm. There wasn't a particular missive from London to mm. tell them how to do these things. Um, it was up to them to like procure uh, stamps, safes, mm. padlocks, trucks to transport the documents, incinerators, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, the Royal Navy base in Singapore was turned into the Asian region's primary document destruction centre. A special incinerator was used to avoid a repeat of the smog that choked out Delhi in 1947. Learn from other mistakes. That's <laughs> what they say about us. Yeah. <laughs> um, if some documents couldn't be shipped to Singapore, the whole process was done on site, where documents would be burnt or dumped in the sea at the maximum practicable distance from shore. And so it was that in 1957, five lorries delivered tons of documents from the British High Commission in Kuala Lumpur to the Royal Navy base in Singapore. These were later surmised to have contained details about British rule in Malaya, um, which they had, there was a kind of comparable uh, state of emergency, like state of war, mm-hmm. after the Second World War, uh, called the Malay Emergency, where the British were fighting um, Chinese-backed communist uh, guerrillas mm-hmm. In, in Malaya, um, full details about the various thing of the various aspects of this haven't really come out, but it's interesting to note that I think it lasted for about ten years, and there were about thirty thousand British troops deployed yeah. in Malaya well, during this during thingy, this time. Some of the more like the some of the angrier Welsh independence movement were yeah. stationed there on there when they were. Um, oh, really? I'm pretty certain Kyle Evans was, and that's part of the reason why he's like so angry all the time. Well, I think he was. Pr- yeah, I'm pretty certain. I yeah. might be wrong about that, but that, um, that I know sounds that about. There were a lot of. Um, right. I know that there was a lot of um, people who were on national service who were then stationed in Malaya who came back upset. Well, one of the first things they did in Malaya, of course, after the Japanese surrendered, was to rearm the Japanese prisoners of war and turn them against the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the guerrillas who they'd been fighting with alongside yep. just after that. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so when the it came to uh, decolonization in Africa, mm-hmm. um, one of the provisions that was added to that list uh, that they had come up with in Ghana, in Ghana were um, provisions for documents being burned showing racial discrimination, um, any records that showed racial prejudice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just love the idea. It's like, they'll never know that we were racist. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It's like there's this very important bureaucratic task. We need you to burn anything that shows us being racist, and you're like, ah, finally, just just toss it all out, all of it. Just the idea of like, ah, we found it. The folder, the one ring binder that showed that the British were racist in Africa. You imagine the arguments on Twitter when there's like a racist edge case. Yeah. Was it racist? Was it anti-Semitic? I don't really understand. You imagine the discussions around the incinerator in Singapore on that one. God. <laughs> um, uh, importantly, uh, this increased emphasis on race also involved putting an actual colour bar on the destruction process itself. So no Africans were to be involved in the sorting of documents. In Kenya, only an individual who was a servant of the Kenya government, who is a British subject of European descent, who has been security cleared to see this classified document, unquote, uh, could take part in the purge. It is to be noted that none of the racial standards for access were specifically defined in London. They appear to be just generally assumed guidelines. Hmm. Um, so that's why you didn't have to spell it out in uh, in Nigeria because there's not as many white settlers. Hmm. So obviously uh, it doesn't really matter. There's not going to be a huge amount of... of that. Is- it's not going to be a huge issue. It's also hmm. not going to be a huge issue in Malaya, but it is going to be a huge issue in places like Kenya, Uganda. Hmm. The historian uh, Caroline Elkins argues that the direction and responsibility for Operation Legacy between Colony and London waxed and waned depending on the circumstances. Uh, you've got to also think of it in terms of the time it was done. Uh, the 1960s, uh, civil rights movements are starting to kind of spring up. Race relations acts are starting to be discussed in the kind of on a domestic, in a, in a, in a domestic context. Yeah. Um, and having just ended a brutally racist counterinsurgency campaign, the local officials were, you know, not that keen to start re-establishing I say re-establishing, they weren't that keen to start establishing a racialized bureaucracy around the destruction of documents. <laughs> they had enough racialized bureaucracies that they already yeah. were kind of part of. Yeah. Um, yeah, so having just ended a brutal counterinsurgency campaign, the local officials were also wary about kind of enemies infiltrating and stealing documents yeah. that could then be used in a kind of propaganda propagandistic way. Yeah, you can't. You, you can't. It's amazing, you know, you invade a country, brutalise its people for years and years and years, and then take try and burn any evidence of it, and sneakily, like they would, <laughs> they try and take evidence of that. <laughs> well, it also reflects a certain amount of like racial paranoia about white settlers yeah. in Kenya. You know, like oh, yeah. uh, the the number and status and like the, the conditions and the, the, the kind of power that the white settlers had meant that, of course, there were more messengers, mm-hmm. maids... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, aides mm-hmm. who were African and so might usually be expected to be involved in a bureaucratic process like that, if not very high up mm-hmm. the, the pole, the status yeah. hierarchy, then they would have access to those kind of uh, those kind of documents. Uh, as a result of the racialization of trusted officials, it meant that the work uh, of destroying took lo- much longer and was less efficiently done than in previous examples. You know, one thing about imperialism in Africa, I'm not saying they were exactly lazy, but 
they also didn't exactly go there expecting to do all the work. No. You know? Well, no, it's like, you know, it's like those stories say, there is no lazier worker than the British worker. <laughs> Maybe that's where they got the first idea of that. <laughs> um, the racial dimensions of who could be considered of European descent also came into the play in the purge mm. of, uh, in, in one case, in the purge of Ugandan documents, uh, Mrs. O.E. D'Souza, a Portuguese national living in Uganda, but mm. born in Goa in uh -oh. India. Married to a British national and most likely of Asian origin, although this actually isn't clear because the document that likely documents her racial origin is itself <laughs> classified. Um, Fuck it uh, She was vetted by the regional administration and said, yeah, you can take part in the destruction. But the governor's office actually intervened and said, no, she can't. Just holding the yeah. colour wheel next to her. Yeah, yes. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. No, sorry. you can't burn anything. <laughs> Um, so documents marked guard could be disclosed to non-British officials as long as they were from the old Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, or Canada. Huh. Let me tell you the, well, can you work it out? I wonder. Replies below. <laughs> can you work out the common denominator between the old Commonwealth? Otherwise known as the good Commonwealth. <laughs> yeah. The pure Commonwealth. What was it called? The Dominions. Yeah. That was what the it was called, that wasn't were, it? The ones that became Dominion states. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Documents that were not to be handed over to the new state were marked with a red stamp, DG or W, acronyms for don't go there and whoa. <laughs> no, that's not, no. obviously. <laughs> um, it was for Director General and Watch. Um, documents that could be passed on to the new state were called legacy papers or legacy files and the ones that had to be burnt or kept secret were called the DG papers sometimes the former were described as clean and the latter dirty the symbol DG was applied with a rubber stamp in the top right hand corner of uh, the correspondence to distinguish the dirty papers DG stood for deputy governor and was made specifically misleading so that if anything happened, if dirt, like quote unquote dirty materials mm. fell into the hands of unauthorized persons, it could be more easily explained away by saying that it was merely an indication that it was a subject falling within the portfolio of the deputy governor. So, if you found oh. a paper and it said yeah. DG, it's like these aren't being destroyed; they're just going to the deputy governor who was in the country and would be then taken to the like, office and resorted. Here's the deputy governor right now, and it's like a giant furnace. <laughs> With like a crude face drawn on it. <laughs> Little moustache. Yeah. <laughs> so part of Operation Legacy was not just that files were destroyed or transferred to Foreign Office Secure Archives mm. in Britain. There were even efforts to make sure that post-colonial governments did not learn that such files had ever existed. When a single watch file, the, the ones to be destroyed was removed from a group of legacy files, a twin dummy file was created to insert in its place because, uh, like, I've been, like, when I was doing, like, historical research and stuff and going through archives, um, a lot of official papers refer to other papers. Mm -hmm. So if you have a whole file that refers to another file, it has a number that relates to another piece of paperwork. And so if it's missing, you're going to know. Mm -hmm. um, if... Uh, if this dummy file could not, if it could not be, this this file could not be taken out and replaced with a dummy file, the documents were to be removed as a whole. There was also concern that Ian McLeod's directions should not be divulged, and officials were warned to keep their W stamps locked away. One instruction stated: the legacy files must leave no reference to watch material. Indeed, the very existence of the watch series, though it may be guessed at, should never be revealed. 
In 2001, a team of British personal injury lawyers flew to Kenya to investigate a damages claim from families of Maasai people who had been killed by unexploded ordnance left over from the British Army's practice ranges in the country. They started hearing stories from elderly eyewitnesses they interviewed that painted a very different picture from the official record of the Mau Mau Rebellion, commonly accepted in Britain. Mm-hmm. At the same time, historians had started re-examining the Mau Mau uprising a lot more closely. It was already known that atrocities were committed on both sides, but those of the Mau Mau were well known in Britain. Love that one. Atrocities committed on both sides. Yes. It's like um, a thing, my daughter in her A-level history class, her teacher is a bit of a yeah, and um, it was doing about Vietnam, and he started off by saying atrocities were committed on both sides, and a kid put up their hand and said, "But did the Vietnamese get in boats and go over to America to commit those atrocities?" <laughs> <laughs> ah, the children! It's always the children. It's always the children that are wrong, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he went on a big thing about how great Kissinger is as well. Oh God, that's a fucking danger. Yeah, that is that's the mark of a danger person. Yeah, it really is. Um. So yeah, those are the, the Mau Mau atrocities were well known in Britain, whereas the counterinsurgency tactics used by the British were generally portrayed as proportionate and in service of protecting quote-unquote good Kenyans. Mm-hmm. Any abuses revealed could be written off as one-offs, as the Hola massacre was. Yeah. This wasn't just due to the lack of historical records, of course. Um, it was also the presence of a kind of omerta code of silence over the empire. Um, uh, the various mutations of the British national ideal uh, were not... The Empire wasn't largely examined as one of these until kind of, I would say, the early 2000s with, mm. like, Neil Ferguson and liberal interventionism was, I mm. think, what probably triggered it off. Yeah. Uh, t- triggered it. Um, but outside academia, Irish groups, and left-wing anti-imperialists, um, it wasn't kind of a widely discussed topic. Mm-hmm. Um, the, act- the, the idea that the entire narrative and the, the moral universe that the Empire inhabited, it just wasn't, it wasn't really... I don't think discussed in, mm. in popular popular discourse. Anyway. So it's a personal injury lawyers essentially code calling former colonies saying, "I hear you might have had a run in with a British they were, Empire." They were asked. <laughs> they were. Like, no, I just realised they did. <laughs> I hear you might have had a knock in, a run in with the British Empire. <laughs> Call us for a no win, no fee. Have you seen gunboats off your court, off your coast? <laughs> have you, you been massacred them? by a Tommy gun? Do you remember there being natural resources in your country and now they're no longer there? <laughs> Yeah, so at the time of the uh, the Mau Mau emergency, as they called it, the British government established two narratives. Mm -hmm. The first was a very racialised one, that the Kikuyu were a savage, irrational tribe seeking to reverse the civilising process they had put Kenya through, the British had put Kenya through. My mum says that. Still. (laughs) (laughs) Still. Anti-white and anti-Christian, and inspired by a hatred of anything Western, yep. and seeking to establish a totalitarian terror control over the country, uh, and the British government had to intervene to protect, like I say, good Kenyans and white settlers. That's literally like, weird, well, yeah, like my nan and my mum. We need to talk about that. We'll do that. We're going to do some more stuff on this. We need yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. Mm. Most accounts did not mention the legitimate political uh, uh, and land claims. Um, and the political aims of the Mau Mau movement, rooted in the widespread depossessions during the period of settlement in the early 20th century. The British even brought in an ethno-psychiatrist, John Colin Carruthers, to perform analysis on the quote-unquote Mau Mau mind. That's a loaded job title. And classified allegiance to the Mau Mau cause as a mental illness. 
This helped engineer the image of the prison camps as rehabilitation centres and the design of a regimen of hard labour and re-education designed to cure this affliction. <laughs> Fuck me! Yeah. This narrative kind of span into a, a less racist one as time went on. The idea that this was an intra intra-African civil war within mm. Kenya yeah. and the British were trying to manage and de-escalate the conflict yeah. now this had an element of truth only an element of truth to it after independence in Kenya there was a divide between those who had fought the British and those who had collaborated but it also bears a remarkable similarity to the way that the British tried to justify their presence in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. you know trying to keep apart two sectarian groups intent on killing each other thus relieving the British state of responsibility yeah. and painting them as neutral arbiters which uh, you know neutral arbiters uh, is presumably why in the six years of the Mau Mau state of emergency a total of 32 European settlers were killed along with 62 members of the security service and in turn 11 Seven and a half thousand purported Mau Mau's were killed, several hundred Africans hanged, and hundreds of thousands suspected Mau Mau's were detained in a network of camps and controlled villages. Because, you know, neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, so in 2005, Caroline Elkins, a Harvard historian, published a book on these prison camps called Britain's Gulag which used survivor testimony to detail the depths to which the colonial administrators, police and soldiers had sunk to suppress the Mau Mau. She calculated that the camps held between 160 and 320,000 people, not 80,000 as previously reported. She also learned that the authorities had herded Kikuyu women and children into some 800 enclosed villages patrolled by soldiers and cordoned off by razor wire, spike trenches and watchtowers, similar to the controlled villages the Americans had tried to institute in the Vietnam War. For her original thesis in 1997, she had met a former colonial officer, Terence Gavahan, who had been in charge of a group of camps on Kenya's Mwia Plain. I'm really sorry if I butchered that. Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologising in advance. Mm -hmm. um, Elkins, questioning him in London, found him creepy and defensive. He denied violence she hadn't asked about. <laughs> Are you telling me that a, a concentration camp guard... A bloke who ran a concentration camp was creepy. Well, they had pap they had papered it over. I read yeah. some obituaries of him. He died actually in two thousand eleven, about the time that the truth about the camps came out. Yeah. And um, he was like, "Ah, oh, yes, but the camps improved while I was in charge." Ooh. That's that was in the Times, the Observer. All of his obituaries, Fuck. like, kind of papered over. They said he was accused of brutality, but actually conditions improved. He was accused of brutality, but no evidence was found. <laughs> All was found was ash. <laughs> Um, over some 300 interviews with former detainees, Caroline Elkins heard testimony after testimony of torture. Uh, content, our first content warning break, uh, about to describe uh, mm -hmm. uh, an act of rape. Um, she met people such as Salome Maina, who had been accused of supplying arms to the Mau Mau. Maina told Elkins she had been beaten unconscious by Kikuyu collaborating with the British. When she failed to provide information, she said, they raped her using a bottle filled with pepper and water. Seeking to clarify what she had heard from oral testimonies, Elkins went in search of written evidence. However, she found many of the records were either missing or confidential. There appeared to be puzzling gaps in what was otherwise sterling record-keeping. The British had three departments in Kenya tasked with record-keeping for the 80,000 detainees. There should have been upwards of 240,000 files in the archives. She only found a few hundred. But she did find one record marked secret that detailed something called the dilution technique, a system of isolation and torture designed to, quote-unquote, rehabilitate the prisoners into recanting their allegiance to the Mau Mau. 
Her book, Britain's Gulag, received a lot of attention uh, in Britain for both lifting the veil on the crimes of the British Empire, as well as others attacking her for relying on oral testimonies and not on the colonial <laughs> records, which of course didn't exist. You know. There's like, and the thing is with like the sterling record keeping, like you can guarantee that there was endless stuff on what they had for dinner. Oh yeah, no, agricultural reports and that. Yeah. It was that's what it mostly was. It was yeah. agricultural reports, personnel reports and like um I don't know, dances. Yeah. That's what's always in Imperial TV shows, isn't it? It's yeah. always lots of dances. Yeah. And then they invite like a, a, a non-white person into the dance and that yeah. proves that they're all right. Yeah. Uh, some crusty old colonel will have a go yeah. at the non-white person for being there and then everybody to a person will turn around and go, "Don't be racist, <laughs> Colonel Blathers." You know? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, um, Indian summer. <laughs> so in 2008, uh, she was contacted by those lawyers acting on behalf of a group of elderly Kenyans that had been tortured in detention camps who were now seeking reparations from the British government. Five claimants were taking part in a test case. The claimants in the case were just like the people Elkins had interviewed in, in Kenya for Britain's Gulag, uh, another content warning for uh, upsetting content mm-hmm. right here. Um, one, Jane Muthino Mara was 15 when she was arrested and interrogated. She said that during the interrogation, uh, two men held her down while a third raped her with a heated glass bottle. She was beaten daily for three months. Another, Paolo Nzili, said he had been stripped, his arms and legs tied together, and castrated with a foot long pair of pliers. Wambugu Wa Nyingi had been arrested despite not being a member of the Mau Mau and had been imprisoned for nine years. He was held at Hola Camp and beaten unconscious during the massacre where 11 prisoners had been beaten to death. He still bore the marks from leg chains, whipping and caning. Uh, the British government attempted, originally attempted to have this legal claim thrown out on the grounds that legal liability passed to the Kenyan government upon independence and therefore they should have been suing the Kenyan government and not the British. The Jesus, the balls yeah yeah uh the presiding judge threw this argument out and criticized the tactic as dishonorable the government lawyers then tried to have the case thrown out under statute of limitations arguing that it was too late for the case to be brought most of the uh claimants were in their 70s and 80s at the time this was also thrown out the judge ordered the foreign office to release all relevant material which officials assured had been done assured the court had been done under signed testimony However, Elkins and other historians brought in as expert witnesses for the five claimants were not convinced. Many of the papers given were incomplete or referred to other files which had not been given over. Important committees and minutes which were known to have existed had no mention or records at all. Finally admitted that it had been withholding 1,500 files stored at a GCHQ facility in Hanslope Park in Buckinghamshire. It admitted that the rumours were true. As per the guidelines for Operation Legacy, on the 3rd of December 1963, nine days before independence, four large packing crates were loaded onto a flight for Gatwick. These were met by a colonial office official and driven to a storage site, then onto a purpose-built three-storey facility in Hamslope Park. The uncovered files detailed the systematic system of abuse, torture and murder that that confirmed the testimony Elkins had been gathering for over a decade. Suspected insurgents had been subjected to the dilution technique alluded to in the files she had uncovered, and Terence Gavahan, the man who she had interviewed years before, had been part of this system responsible for the implementation of the technique, um, which had been used far more systematically and widely than previously surmised. Confession and renunciation of their oaths to the Mau Mau movement were considered the first step on their road to recovery. 
From the point of confession, colonial officers then categorised the individual as blacks, greys or whites, based on their presumed position and commitment to the cause. This determined how easily they believed they would be rehabilitated. Those within the black category were primarily the leaders and the most dope deeply involved, whereas the white group consisted of individuals mainly cleared of involvement during screening. This category system was used to monitor the progress of those detained and framed the process of rehabilitation. Uh, so I have another... <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, another content warning here for upsetting content. Under this system, suspected insurgents were beaten to death, burned alive, raped, castrated and kept in manacles for years. This was applied to men, women and children alike. One document described how an African member of Special Branch pushed pins into the detainee's sides, buttocks, fingers and on at least one occasion the head, and pinched the sides of their bodies, penis and scrotum with pliers. He crushed the fingers of one detainee. It also included details of how amnesties were granted for officers accused of murder, including one district officer who had murdered a prisoner by beating him, then roasting him alive. Particularly damning were the letters and memos from the colony's Attorney General, Eric Griffith Jones, who, while describing the mistreatment of prisoners as reminiscent of Nazi Germany or Communist Russia, drafted guidelines to lessen the psychological burden of torture on the jailers. Quote, Vulnerable parts of the body should not be struck, particularly the spleen, liver or kidneys. Anyone who protested should have a foot placed on his throat and mud stuffed in his mouth, and in the, in the last resort be beaten unconscious. If we are going to sin, he advised, we must sin quietly. Fuck. Yeah. So the British government, defeated repeatedly in court, moved to settle the Mau Mau case. On the 6th of June 2013, Foreign Secretary William Hague read a statement in Parliament that it was settling the case. £19.9 million would be paid to 5,228 surviving claimants, approximately £3,800 each. Quote, he said in Parliament, quote, the British government recognises that Kenyans were subject to torture and other forms of ill-treatment at the hands of the colonial administration, Haig said. Britain sincerely regrets that these abuses took place. This was the first time Britain had admitted carrying out torture anywhere in its former empire. Um, so this kind of unleashed a lot of other kind of potential claims for, uh, for justice. Um, there are veterans of the Cypriot Rebellion against British rule, waged by the EOKA, they alleged that 14 Cypriots, including two 17-year-old boys, died under interrogation and that hundreds more were beaten and waterboarded. It may also have a bearing on the recent case brought by the Chagos Islanders, who had been forcibly removed from their homes in Diego Garcia to make way for a US airbase, which was, ironically, the site of transfers for extra extraordinary renditions carried out in the War on Terror. By 2011, the Foreign Office admitted that it had 8,000 files hidden from 37 former Imperial possessions. The migrated archive, as it was referred to by the Foreign Office, had been kept in Hanslope Park and was the subject of an inquiry which established that for three decades the government had refused the Kenyan government access to the archive on the grounds that it could set a precedent for the former colonies. The report itself was made public, albeit in a document that itself had redacted passages blacked out. An independent historian, Tony Badger, of Cambridge University, has since established that there may be more than 20,000 files removed that have never seen the light of day and that many more documents that should exist but are unaccounted for, for example from Aden, where the British, after a bloody four-year rebellion, only had five boxes of records, mostly low-level personnel files and agricultural reports. Just photos of um, Paddy Ashdown yeah. flexing. Yep. Uh, it appears as if these newly discovered reports are going through another round of the official secrecy treatment, even after their discovery. So, 
Yeah, that's a that's a pretty rough uh, thing. Caroline Elkins, at the time of Britain go- Britain's Gulag, mm. there was a debate and a discussion. There were plenty of people who were supporting it's a cruel her. Slur against gulags. <laughs> yeah, um, at the time she had a lot of shit uh, talked about her. Um, by many, sure. many historians. Mac ha- Max Hastings and Neil, oh, Fer- Neil Ferguson come to mind. Neil Ferguson, of course, <laughs> being an empire child from Kenya himself. Yeah, like, how dare you say that about mother? <laughs> how dare you? Well, he has a quote. He's got, um, I've got it here. Uh, yeah, he did, yeah, Neil Ferguson describes his Kenyan childhood as a magical time which indelibly impressed upon my consciousness the sight of the hunting cheetah the sound of Kikuyu women singing, the smell of first rains, and the taste of ripe mango. I suspect my mother was any was never happier. <laughs> like, so, we'll, yeah, talk about it, we'll talk about it in another episode. That's not the um, portrayal of Kenyan life that my grandmother had. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, like why why did they do it? Why did they remain silent for so long? Hmm. There's a there's a couple of reasons that I can think of. Um, in the immediate in the immediate kind of context of what was happening, there was the Cold War. Um, former imperial powers like the French, the Belgians, and the British um, were appealing directly to the U.S. to kind of stop these newly independent countries falling to to communism. In mm. fact, they did that very successfully in Iran, mm-hmm. where the British actually um, like spread rumors about the first demo- I think it was the first democratically elected president mm. of Iran, Mossadegh, um, and actually convinced the US and the CIA to do a coup yeah. that toppled Mossadegh. Um, and like the whole idea was it was a, a, a propaganda campaign within the Cold War that obviously the Soviet gulag, like various uh, revelations about the Soviet system had been coming out for years mm-hmm. about how they treated prisoners, uh, what they did to political dissidents. And uh, the West had its conception of we're the ones who defeated Nazism, we're the ones who allow free societies, and then, of course, you've got all of these European countries with colonies that they are repressing, mm-hmm. that they are doing exactly the same things to. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, and also there's the fact that the Cold War went, kind of when it went hot, primarily happened in these non-European contexts. So yeah. having... British control over a country or a British interest in a country was helpful to the US mm-hmm. at a time when they were fighting kind of Soviets in proxy wars. Yeah. Um, things like that. It's also important that the kind of the construction of the narrative that persists in the mainstream to this day, that British imperialism in particular was less violent than other European empires. Yeah. Um, a self image, it contributes to a self image of the empire as a benign institution full of railway pioneers, bridge builders, and philanthropists detoxifying empire for the domestic audience it also allowed the kind of british to separate themselves from any agency about things that went on on in the empire Hmm. um they were neutral arbiters or it also helps the kind of whole idea that they stumbled into the empire it's Hmm. just oh accidentally we've got like a load of colonies yeah um and obviously there is the context of you know i don't think anybody at the time even the most diehard tories thought that the empire was coming back Mm. Um, but the need to kind of defend racialized settler societies and uh, defend British business interests post independence, mm. um, and at least be seen to be protect to be defending them for votes back home. Yeah, because you couldn't be seen as like not being on the side of white people in Africa. <clears throat> You've abandoned home. the Rhodesians or something yeah. like that. Although I don't actually think I don't. I've never really looked into Rhodesia that much, um, but I don't get the opinion that Rhodesia was well loved. 
um, back in back yeah. in England. Even it's like kind of like South Africa. Mm. I don't think South Africa was like universally popular. Mm. Like you were a weirdo if you liked apartheid, yeah. right? That 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 social stigma still existed, right? Did it? I mean, you may not because you may not have supported like, Mandela, but you didn't like if you if you came out and said liberals no apartheid, be in favor of apartheid. Yeah, 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 maybe that's yeah, maybe that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and they can, it, you know, this kind of engineering independence in a way that benefits you is shown by the fact that most former colonies are still kind of tax havens, yeah. white settler states, or, you know, primary resource, like exploited primary resource countries. Yeah. You know, they are not, they are, they are the global south. Yeah. They are not, they've not become the global north, mm. you know? Um, there's also similarities uh, in the way that they treated kind of Operation Legacy to the way that they've treated like Hillsborough and Bloody Sunday. The British yeah. state is <clears throat> a very secretive state. Um, secrecy on the part of like governments and institutions necessarily creates an elite. Mm-hmm. It creates people who can be trusted, a particular core of people who have access to information, and a particular kind of like insider outsider relationship which yeah. is as an, a very elitist institution that's the way that the british state has always has always worked you know um i mean there was only i think it was a few years ago there was literally a debate in parliament about whether they should release the rec- all the records um mm. related to uh hillsborough mm. there's also the fact that it's taken this long they've only just um charged one of the soldiers responsible for the bloody sunday yeah. massacre one with murder they've charged one mm. Who was also being charged for what's it, Bally Figgy? Bally Murphy. He was also at Bally Murphy as well. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you can see the success of this, like deliberate, like like this deliberate withholding of information. You can see the success um, based on the amount of time that the British state has been able to hold out in things like Hillsborough, Mm -hmm. um, Bloody Sunday. and let's face it, Grenfell is mm-hmm. increasingly look like it's going to become another one of those yeah. those issues. Um, it's able to hold out so long, and frankly, the longer it goes on, the tale the tales of kind of mass incarceration of murder can be consigned to something that is of history mm-hmm. rather than of yeah. of now. Yeah, you know, um, frankly, those the tales that have come that came out in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Haven't moved the national, the British national discourse. Uh, two well, no, years too late. People already have their set opinion of how the empire <clears throat> was. Yeah, it's it's far more. Con- it's it's. I don't want to say that the records are meaningless because, of course, they're not. They're incredibly important. However, what is even more important is the power of the discourse that is happening at the time. Hmm. So, like two years after Britain's Gulag was published, Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor, visited East Africa and said. The days of Britain having to apologise for its colonial history are over. We should move forward. We should celebrate much of our past rather than apologise for it. We should talk about British values that are enduring because they stand for some of the greatest ideas in history, tolerance, liberty, civic duty, that grew in Britain and influenced the rest of the world. That was two years after Britain's Gulag was published. Mm. If anything, the empire receives more nostalgia and defence now, when the UK state is in a moment of crisis, of course. Um... When it is, when it has to be actively defended, which yeah. is usually the sign of the omerta, the code of silence getting weaker, mm. it receives more nostalgia and defence now than it did when it wasn't discussed at all. Mm. 
it's partly because of kind of deliberate engineering of picking one story over another and repressing alternate ones. That's where the kind of Operation Legacy legacy comes in. Um, but of course, the domestic consequence of this has always been that the English don't have any other stories to tell themselves mm. about what they are. And I, I, when I say that, I do mean English because, like, mm. despite the complicity of of Scottish, Welsh, and Irish peoples in the Empire. It's the English who need the story of the imperial civilizing mission to be true. Irish, yeah. Scots, and Welsh have other stories to tell them. It's at, like on a purely kind of like mechanical level. They yeah. have other stories to tell themselves about what their national stories are. The English do not have anything. There was some like thread I saw a little while ago that argued that the English nation state, particularly, mm. never existed because it was not a nation. It was while people have been calling themselves English since mm. like the 1400s, conceptualizing themselves in those ways. The nation state, as such, wasn't formed until the 1700s, by which point it had become the British Empire. Hmm. The English, as a whole, had poured themselves into that and their notion of themselves being British. And then, of course, after the empire falls, you've still got the absorption of the UK into of the the absorption of the of England into the UK. Yeah, and like this isn't some kind of like freedom for the English or anything like that. But I do think it's kind of quite important to stress. Um, how the national story is conceptualised and how central to changing this country the historical amnesia around the empire is. Yeah. Because people, there's a whole chunk of history, of modern history, most of our modern history, mm -hmm. is bound up with the things that have happened that were explained in the files that we would have access to, that would be discussed and, and dealt with on a kind of mass psychological level that never ended up getting discussed mm. because of things like Operation Legacy. Yeah. Um, and to sum up, uh, so just after the war, the UN started making declarations on like uh, non-self-governing countries, meaning yeah. imperial colonies. One French official said, these newcomers, once under the dependence of the West, have a double preoccupation to assure themselves the role of judge before our accused and uneasy civilizations, and to boast of their own modern and innovative spirit in the face of our old, outmoded system. And when the British can... So, what I'm saying is, when the British congratulate themselves on the relative goodness of their empire, it's not because they were better, it's only because they've never been judged. Okay, so that's us for this week. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game When Mr. Hoover said to come